Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. Well, they learned that Snowflake is like really practicing go direct. So, you know, if something you don't like, you'd like to fix, you have to go to a person who made the decision. Usually you learn much more about the decision. There's a good conversation. Sometimes you convince the owner of the decision to do something different. I think nothing beats going direct because any other means of trying to change a certain decision, certain point of view indirectly is ineffective, causes frictions, and ultimately energy gets dissipated. Hello and welcome to the Engineering Leadership Podcast brought to you by ELC, the engineering leadership community. I'm Jerry Lee, founder of ELC. And I'm Patrick Gallagher, and we're your hosts. Our show shares the most critical perspectives, habits, and examples of great software engineering leaders to help evolve leadership in the tech industry. Welcome back to the show, and hopefully from a wonderful holiday weekend, or if the 4th of July is not a holiday you celebrate, that you still have the opportunity to spend quality time with your friends and family. In this episode, we have a conversation with Greg Tchaikovsky, SVP of Engineering at Snowflake, discussing everything from the secrets he's learned about great teams, including some incredible perspectives like the power of eliminating hierarchy, going direct, how to reduce energy dissipation in your teams, removing friction in your org, creating higher innovation per time unit, and many other great perspectives. Let me introduce you to Greg. Greg's career has made him a verified distributed systems and org scaling expert. Prior to Snowflake, he spent 13 years at Google as the VP of engineering responsible for a broad portfolio of Google Cloud data analytics and machine learning products and for internal services addressing data analytics needs of all of Google's businesses. Before Google, Greg spent six years at Sun Microsystems working on Java runtime environments and operating systems. Greg also holds over 50 patents. We're also joined by guest co-host Clarence Chio. Clarence is CTO and co-founder at Unit21, and he's a longtime ELC member. Enjoy our conversation with Greg Tchaikovsky. So the first thing I wanted to do is I just want to say welcome, Clarence. Really excited to have you join us as a, a co-host for this episode. So thank you for, for joining us today. Thank you. Excited to be here and excited to dive into Greg and Snowflake. I've been a big fan. We've been customers of Snowflake at Unit21 for over a year now, and we're really excited, really impressed by the technology and also by the leadership of the growth of the engineering team. Absolutely. Greg, how are you doing? What's what's going on? No, I'm great. It's very nice to be here with you guys. So let's go for it. Let's do it. So to set the stage a little bit, you know, we're going to explore some of the different perspectives that you've gained around building great teams and some of the lessons that you've learned around operating in a really highly competitive SaaS environment that, that Snowflake exists in. To begin our, our story and exploration of your experience, I was wondering, is there a team from your past career at, like, at Sun, Google, or Snowflake or otherwise where you think back or you reflect and you say, man... That was just a superb team to be a part of. That was an amazing <laughs> experience. Or so a team that's like, we need more, we need more teams like this. Is there an experience that comes to mind there? So I was really lucky and maybe blessed even because in every single team I, I was on was like that. Since my early days as a microsystems and Google and now at Snowflake, I 
oversee a whole bunch of teams, right? But I, I see great teams end to end. And, you know, I don't want to name one team because I would do a disservice to many others. But I'll just say that, that all those teams have um, this one unifying theme. Namely, people on them are focused, aligned on what they do, they move fast, and they are empowered to bring concerns as they arise. Right. So essentially, people can make decisions, of course, in a bigger context of, of what we want to accomplish. So yeah, I also try to create such teams. Both Google and Sun are legendary companies. I think you know no one can really contest that. But what makes Snowflake different? Like, What made you want to join Snowflake? What stood out to you? So, so first, you know, I was I was at Google. Uh, I was in charge of uh, all of the data analytics tools at the time when Snowflake started to rise to prominence. First, I, I learned about Snowflake from one ad on Highway 101. We have very creative marketing department. I love their their ads. I got intrigued, right? So I started to debug Snowflake, and it was er- very early after the launch. But of course, it was my competition, so I, I started to pay attention big time. And I was increasingly impressed with the boldness of vision and the execution velocity. It was just kind of amazing how such a small company could essentially run circles around bigger ones and deliver innovative ideas to market quickly. A lot of innovations per time unit, so to speak, right? So, so I was really attracted to that. And then I, I, I met the founders and I was really impressed by how great the conversation was, how well we clicked. Uh, I talked with Frank Stutman, our CEO, and you know, then, then he shared with me some of his core tenets. I'll talk about it later, but you know, go direct. So how essentially a lot of problems can be solved by go direct. And I've always been like operating in the go direct mode, but till Frank told me it was kind of this subconscious, you know, idea, then he verbalized it. So I was very impressed. I was I was also concerned. I was going for a large, from a large company to a then startup, right? How people operate, how culture is different. And actually, it turned out that it was not much different from the one at Google. Maybe some decisions were made faster. You know, there was, I think, more focus because there was only one product and we had to focus. But it was not a very painful transition. In fact, it was a very pleasant transition. You mentioned one of the things that really stood out to you about Snowflake was the moving fast, doing really innovative things. And this conversation with Frank and, and understanding sort of the core leadership tenets or like the core company tenets that that he applies, like also sounds like that was something that really stuck with you. So my the next question was going to be like, well, what are the secrets? Like, what have you learned about building great teams? And how has that shaped your approach now? So maybe you can share some of the, those those lessons that have shaped you. I know you mentioned GoDirect. Would love to dive in deeper into that one uh, if we wanted to start there. No, if you have any any group of people, there are always you know different opinions, different experiences, different backgrounds, and so on, which which shape you know different decisions. And quite often, you you might not be happy with some decision or or, or some take on on something, right? And in in many places, the typical mode of operation then is to not go to the source of this decision, but to go to somebody else, complain, avoid a discussion. And you know, not every discussion needs to be difficult. In fact, if you kind of practice going direct, you you will learn how to bring even the most difficult topic in a respectful and proactive way. What I learned at Snowflake is like really practicing go direct. So, you know, if something you don't like, you'd like to fix, you have to go to a person who made the decision. Usually you learn much more about the decision. So it's not like you go there and someone will say, oh, you know, we made this decision on a whim and now we have to overturn it. There's a good conversation. Sometimes you convince the owner of the decision to do something different, but I think nothing beats going direct because any other means of trying to change a certain decision, certain point of view indirectly is ineffective, causes frictions, and ultimately energy gets dissipated. Another thing I learned at Snowflake, again, I, I think, you know, in hindsight, maybe I knew it all along, but I was able to like consciously verbalize it, is that it's very important to pay attention to energy. Energy is pretty much like the only thing we have. 
and we can manifest it in different ways. And if we spend time on planning, if we spend time on like figuring out what to do and then do it well, energy is not dissipated, it's conserved and used to the highest purpose, then we can have this effect of high rate of innovation per time unit, right? Otherwise, you kind of two steps forward, two steps back. So focus, alignment, uh, go direct. Those are the things I learned here. That's fascinating. I, Greg, I'd love to double click into the go direct point there, because how do you balance between that and topology or structure? Because going direct for, you know, people that have maybe problems or issues or questions about an engineering team doing something that maybe bypass the typical channels for efficiency. I love that. That's so much so much efficiency that you gain and so much common ground that you, you, you gain by just talking directly to the person. But how does this balance up with structure and, and organization? First of all, it starts with being accessible. The founders set, I think, a very good kind of practice at Snowflake of being visible and accessible. Anybody can walk up to them, discuss any topic. You know, I'm trying to same thing and, and my directs and so on, right? So so it's about being accessible, then it's about being open to ideas, right? Any question, any concern goes and it's on management to answer it. And sometimes the answer could be, you know, sorry, we cannot change that, but here's why. Another thing is to build trust. If people go direct to somebody and then, you know, they raise some topic and it's used against them, it's obviously a bad go direct, right? So people need to be open to critique. They need to be open to new ideas. And, and again, we practice it in the management team and... I like to think that it's propagating down. Obviously, there could be pockets where it's not happening, but it's really important to kind of walk the walk. I am very interested in removing hierarchy, as in hierarchy, of, of course, exists, right? Managers you know, have more input to their employees, you know, performance assessments, those kinds of things, right? But most of the time, hierarchy is not present at the way Snowflake operates. So in all kinds of design or implementation or engineering reviews, if you kind of had some observer from the outside, you wouldn't know who is the most senior person level-wise versus who is the most junior person. You know, we invite everybody's opinions. I like to think that this combination adds up to the uniqueness of Snowflake. I would love to talk a little bit more about eliminating hierarchy because that was a practice, you know, when I was doing a little bit of research in, in the prep, like that was a practice that stood out to me as really distinct. The particular practice that you had mentioned about the accessibility for senior leaders and executive leaders to, to anybody in the company. Can you share a little bit about how you eliminate that hierarchy and maybe the value of having that accessibility? Like, is there a story that illustrates like when you make senior and executive leaders accessible to people in the company? the value that that can bring to velocity, increasing innovation, and things like that. Yes. So I can tell you a story about, it's from my past, so not from Snowflakes, from Google. I was then a very junior employee. I just started, and I was at the same time taking a management class. And the midterm was to interview your CEO. It was a class for working professionals. So usually there was a CEO for everybody. And my colleagues were pretty sure that their CEO will not even respond to their email and VPs will maybe deign to talk with them. But I emailed Eric Schmidt. In my email, I said, hey, Eric, I, I know that you don't know me, but I'm very curious about like, to meet you. And by the way, I've got this midterm. I would love to you know, learn a few things and get a great grade. I expected silence or some email from his admin, which would go like, Greg, get a grip. <laughs> but instead... Eric found time for me in a week, full hour at lunchtime. We talked about all kinds of things. You know, I got to know him a little bit more. And to me, the lesson was that if a CEO can find time for me for something so, honestly, frivolous within a week, that I have no excuse. You know, If someone wants to talk with me about anything, I have to be there within one day. And it also... Taking it further, you know, I think I think a good manager has to kind of have it in him or her that, uh, you know, you don't want to block your team. 
if your team asks you a question, wants a decision, wants some kind of approval, you cannot be the bottleneck. Right, so so we we are really trying to to be that you know be very accessible to people, not to be a bottleneck. And if you practice, you get really good at it. Such an incredible story. You mentioned this phrase, higher innovation per time unit, and I wanted to dive in deeper into that. I think the big thing is like, are there are there certain practices that you see as like input to create higher innovation per time unit? Like, are there specific practices that you see as like the dials to help out with innovation? Tell us a little bit more about your perspective there. Usually when I when I talk about innovation or execution, I like to add per time unit, right? Because you know, you may finish a project, it's gonna take you 20 years, right? So yes, you got the finish line, but way later. So maybe I'll, I'll first talk about execution and then I will talk about innovation because they're kind of, you know, they're not disconnected. For us at Snowflake, it's really important to make sure that once we focus on some implementation, we know exactly where we're going and chances are very low that we'll have to change tack. Right, so I talk about energy and energy dissipation. One of the biggest uh, energy drains is when you start doing something and you do it for six months, let's say, and then it's like, oopsie, no, we actually didn't mean that. We have to change tack, do something else. You've wasted those six months. So we try to front load all the design discussions with, and, and of course, all the product discussions with our great PM team. And then we do what we, what we plan to do. A part of it is also managing responsibly technical debt. Right? It's kind of easy to move fast when you keep accruing debt and you never pay it off and then you go into bankruptcy of some kind and then you have to reemerge from it, right? So managing long and short term is very important. Now, innovation. Let's assume that we actually have execution down pat. We know how to run quickly. Now, how do we come with ideas which are worthy of execution? First of all, it starts with the boldness of the company. So the, the founders instilled the sort of sky's the limit mindset. Think big, which is one of our corporate values. Think big. It's very encouraged. And do not self-censor. Right. If the idea looks great, for a moment, don't think about resources needed or time needed. Let's explore the idea because maybe there's something there and maybe we can make it work, right? We have a few means of soliciting ideas from the org. We have a process which I call from ideas to launching. Uh, we have a hackathon once a year where a lot of cool ideas come up and we listen to our teams, right? So at, at the planning at the planning time, we ask every team to, you know, within some larger framework to provide their own plans. And it's also a venue for teams once a quarter to offer ideas, what they would like to do. Greg, I want to dig down a little bit more into that because the innovation per per unit time concept is really, really fascinating. Something that I've always struggled with is how to know that a team is performing at the peak of their output. So how do you know that the team is maximizing the innovation per unit time? Is there a metric or a measure? I've never gotten anything very convincing about this, but everyone has a different perspective. You know, it's, it's, it's a great question because honestly asking, you know, is there some kind of version of speed of light, right? Which you cannot break, but when you're at it, you know that there's, you cannot get any better. And honestly, I don't know the answer, but I'll, I have a few insights here. One is that if you have done everything possible to eliminate distractions, you have given the team all the right tools, then at least, you know, you, you, you have a shot of being optimal. At many companies, you've got this dilemma, do we pursue quality or velocity? And if it's velocity, we go very quickly, but we really break things and we pursue quality, but you never launch, right? And it's almost like, you know, X or, or either or, right? But in Snowflake, what we concluded is that actually it should be quality and velocity because, you know, velocity is an illusion till the next rollback, right? If you go too fast. So I talked about responsible tech debt management, but essentially, you know, it's very important for planning to say, okay, here are new cool ideas. But at the same time, imagine that we only focus on innovation, but never focus on quality. You could imagine headlines, right? No, it wouldn't do anybody any good, right? So we have to combine 
thinking about quality and velocity as, as one concept almost. And of course, at times you kind of tilt it slightly to like go faster or more quality, but ideally on both metrics, you get better over time. And at this point at Snowflake, it's not a dilemma. It's an accepted fact that both dimensions need to be pursued in concert. Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. Two things that you shared that really resonated. Team for execution and performance is like the speed of light. Uh, and then velocity is an illusion for the next rollback. I thought were really, really great quotes to capture some of the sentiment there. I'm sure Snowflake releases a lot of a lot of products at a very high velocity. And I'm sure there's tension between pushing business progress, pushing for market capture, uh, revenue growth, and also balancing this quality metric that Frankly, I think engineering maybe has the biggest view, insight, purview over. How do you balance that? How do you set the expectations for the business side of the house, the revenue side of the house, product side of the house to create this balance of a non-dilemma between quality and velocity? I should also add that, you know, I, I send probably every six months a reminder to the product org that, you know, quality is much more important than deadlines, right? So ideally, of course, we launch everything on time. In fact, tomorrow would be great. But in practice, you know, we, we do pay attention to quality to the point where, you know, if we discover some issues, we'd rather not launch than launch and regret. It, it kind of has many uh, interesting aspects to it, but one of them is we spend a lot of time on alignment across the org. And our sales colleagues know very well that quality sells. In fact, we are very proud of our NPS, 72. Recently, there was a blog post, 72 in our business uh, is tremendously high score. And it sells, right? So same with self-managed service with the no-ops, no-nobs approach, push to the limit. We are very proud of Snowflake just works, right? You don't need to configure, you don't need to do a whole bunch of things that other systems require. Now, obviously, there's always a temptation, like, uh, we can just give this one note for this one customer or do this other thing for this other customer and kind of maybe move faster. But the aggregate result of such corner cutting would be going from a great product to something mediocre. So we have full understanding across the company. Same with automation, you know, you may say that, okay, maybe this quarter we could go faster and deliver some more features, or we could automate some processes so in future quarters we can move faster, right? Those debates actually are not very difficult because our product management team, our sales team are very understanding. What helps is great track records. The same approach has been serving us very well. A few quarters ago, we decided with, with our business colleagues that we will not do some things on the business side in a given quarter to make room for automation so that in future quarters we can go faster. And it was also a fairly easy decision and discussion. And so anyway, alignment does help. Track record does help. Also, what, what helps is that at Snowflake, we by and large have pretty good understanding of the product. So all the execution telemetry, all the statistics sit in something called Snowhouse. So it's a Snowflake account used internally. But pretty much all of engineers have access to it. I use it if I need some statistics. And the knowledge of the product from using it every day also helps to make it better because otherwise we suffer. Greg, I wanted to ask you a follow-up question about energy dissipation. 
is you, you'd referenced it a couple times and you pointed out a, a few really precise sources or trouble areas of energy dissipation. And so I was wondering if you could share a little bit more about your perspective there and maybe how you coach teams to identify or eliminate that. Uh, because as you know, you become more senior, you become more abstracted from the, the teamwork. Yes. How do you do that? It's really important to me and my colleagues at Snowflake to really empower everybody, you know, to bring ideas to the table, to be a partner in many things we do. And a part of it is to tell us if, you know, maybe one process went too far or maybe if some tool is not so great or, or you know, essentially friction. We actually have every roughly between six to nine months, something which we call friction survey. It goes to everybody in the product org and there's essentially one question, what slows you down? And it can be anything. I even once got a response like, you know, on the it was before the pandemic, uh, on the third floor after 3 p.m. there is no coffee. That was pretty easy to fix, right? But there are, of course, deeper problems like, you know, let's say security reviews would take a long time or we actually were kind of straddling two different source code systems and, and, and all that, right? So it can be all over the place. And with our TPM org, we are trying after every survey to go after those, those, those items. Certainly, we have a lot of work to do. Now the focus is our dev tooling to make it faster again, you know, how to increase the unit productivity of engineers. So, so one source is essentially learning from everybody, you know, what hurts and, and trying to fix it. And there is the kind of large observation I talked about it. A large source of energy dissipation is changing plans. So we really spend time with, with the PM team and, and architects and everybody who has some input on defining what to do next. And I've been here for, you know, three years now, actually last Friday, I turned three at Snowflake and I haven't yet seen like a major change of plans. And it's not because we are so stubborn, and kind of work against reason, but it's really because planning is done very well and then you can just execute smoothly. The the coffee one I think is really fun because that, that becomes like a really tangible, easy thing to do and like a no-brainer. That's, I, I love hearing that that particular story. To me, it was... <laughs> so, you know, I, I don't drink coffee, so I wouldn't <laughs> know, but... I accept it as a, as a fact of nature that coffee is important. Yeah, I think it just it just goes to show like how the level of detail that you have to go into to understand what causes an increase or decrease in productivity, what what kind of grinds people's gears because everything builds on one, one another to create a perfect working environment that maximizes all of your metrics and productivity. But it, it, also, it also shows a bit, I think, of kind of trust. You know, I think that people bringing up even such seemingly small problems, but of course for them important, it shows a certain level of trust. Like I trust that at the minimum, you know, nobody will use it against me, that information, nobody will make fun of it. At the maximum, somebody will fix it. And I always tell the team that there are no kind of problems too small because if something bothers you, certainly it's most likely worth fixing. No, I'm actually curious about doing this at scale because Snowflake is, has a big engineering company. The company has grown a lot, especially in the last few years and especially since you took over uh, engineering and support. And I, I'm curious how you do this at scale. I'm guessing there's a lot of empowerment that you rely on the managers, you rely on the structure of support that you've built in the org. So I'm curious about the management structure. What do you look for in a manager? What's the role of a manager in engineering at Snowflake? So I would say that... At Snowflake, the role of managers is not that different than its other, you know, Silicon Valley companies, right? So, so people are very engaged in setting st managers' strategy for the teams, recruiting for the teams, you know, well-being of the teams, execution, right? So, kind of standard management uh, uh, tasks. And what I think is unique at Snowflake is that you know, managers, at least the ones I know, I don't know everybody really well, but the ones I know well, they're very open. They really embody the values of you know, go direct, help others, you know try to figure out how to improve, essentially challenge status quo. 
is very important. Uh, we also spend quite a lot of time on helping managers grow, right? So one way to think about it is that, you know, you may commission a, a class from some outside vendor and then this vendor will teach you something and it's, it's a useful approach. We took a somewhat different approach, more homegrown. So we have a group of managers which formed a working group uh, now it's five of them, which runs monthly meetings for all managers where we bring all kinds of interesting topics to discuss. And they are kind of crowdsourced from the management team as long as, as, as well as they come from the working group. Recently, we've even started, uh, you know, retrospectives on execution. Right? So usually you do retrospectives or postmortems when there is a production failure. Right? So something went wrong and then you debug the problem, discuss the root cause, the timeline and formulate action items. We took that concept into management. Right, so there was some plan, and actually we got the finish line, but maybe we could have gotten there sooner. So let's x-ray this execution. Let's have a post-mortem. Just like in production, they are blameless. So obviously, somebody was involved, but we don't care about who did it. The idea is, okay, here's the shape of things. Here is how it went well, how it didn't, and what we can learn from it. And as far as I can tell, you know, what I'm hearing from managers who listen and participate in those meetings, people really like our focus on management development, because it's coming from us. It can be instantly customized. It talks about specific events that we saw as opposed to some more abstract events from elsewhere. I think it works quite well. It's really interesting. Since we're talking about managers, one of the elements of how Snowflake's leadership structure is set up that was really interesting to me was sort of the composition of, of small teams. And, and the focus on having small teams and, and small unit sizes. And so I was wondering if you could talk to us a little bit more about, about that team structure. My understanding is that it's four-person teams and like the idea is like make it small and then use those as like the units to sort of build up. Is that accurate? Can you tell us a little bit more about the small team structure and how you build those up at different levels? It's sort of a goal. I wouldn't say that we always organize like this could be three or five and maybe, maybe some teams do it differently. But in my own experience, when I was a developer and also many of my senior colleagues shared this opinion that they were the most productive and the most happy as developers on a fairly small team. So it's not like you work in a four-person company, and of course there's a larger structure, but even very large teams can be decomposed into smaller ones and then smaller, and then at the bottom, a small group of people, right? Usually they do their own code reviews, designs, they own something together, and then they interact with other small teams, and then they build something larger. It's not always possible, you know, in some roles, you've got to be extremely horizontal and talk to everybody and understand a lot of things. But I think it's, you know, most developers, I know 80% could easily fit into this kind of small team model. And it's not like I see a lot of it happening. You know, it makes people happier because they know their small number of colleagues very well. They learn each other's habits, they learn their strengths, they also learn faster because there are fewer people to learn, so to speak. You can you can just learn a few and then move fast forward. And I think it works to a large extent. But again, at Snowflake, I am like the last person to tell teams how to operate. So for instance, we don't prescribe whether teams should use, should use agile methodology or something else. As long as you know code is clean, reviewed, tested, and all that, teams are totally at liberty to decide how they create their artifacts. In fact, we have some people who do pair programming. It's totally fine too. So how they operate, I will not tell them. I'll just suggest that, you know, here's a really good way to do it based on my or others' experience. I love that approach, allowing teams to, to choose how they operate as long as it's most effective for them and creating the same quality of, of output as everybody. And I love the idea of owning, having people own something together. Is there like a particular way you think about shaping how those units all interact with each other? I think a successful way to run a large org has two elements. One is telemetry. So how do you know what's going on? 
what I like to ask teams for, you know, to send every week or every two weeks a very short update, email update, to a certain mailing list, and people can subscribe to it. Also, once a week, we send all those updates and all the, you know, um, review decks, the whole org. But to me, you know, I read those very carefully, and I learn a lot about, okay, on that team, things look green, no issue. On that team, something started to go south, need to pay attention. The trick there is to explain to people who send those updates. And again, we have a lot of new employees. They come from different places, different habits, sometimes even different fears. It's important to explain that it's totally okay to share bad news quickly. But it's absolutely the wrong behavior to try to, you know, something should be red, but it's yellowish, so it's yellow. And then, you know, yellow is the new green and all that, right? So, so be really honest in your status reports. This way you can have a kind of quick bird's eye view of the whole org. That's one thing. Second, you know, you know, I learned, you know, I learned engineering, and then one of my directs runs a large program, and then his directs run another large program. It's more like this kind of recursive structure. And you really pay attention to, to how um, the org is structured. You can get a lot of leverage from the team is composed of people who own that specific topic and a different team owns something different and they interact in a loosely coupled way, right? They, they don't need to be like totally, totally closely coupled. It especially comes to the fore when you create uh, new sites, especially in faraway geographies, right? Because if you, if you don't pay attention to what I would call a spaghetti dilemma, where everybody needs to talk to everybody else, you wind up with a situation, for example, when people in Europe have to spend many, pretty much every evening, every single day to be on Zoom with their colleagues on the West Coast of the US. We have now five offices, you know, Bellevue in Washington, then San Mateo, California, then Toronto, Warsaw and Berlin. So how do you protect people from essentially having no life because they have to be always on Zoom and talk to their colleagues, right? If you kind of have some attitude that in steady state, you know, it should be at most one evening a week, it kind of forces some decisions, right? It forces grouping of work. Okay, that team owns that part, the other team owns the other part and they communicate through, you know, documents and, and files. They don't need to be on meetings all the time. Greg, we're, we've got time maybe for, for one or two more questions, and then we have a couple rapid-fire ones to, to close on. I wanted to bring up one dilemma that's come up in a couple engineering leader peer group conversations that, that I've had, and, and that's this dilemma around how team size can often be oftentimes be used as a, a proxy for power, authority, or a way to demonstrate I'm progressing in my career. In, in reference to the, the team structure elements that you were laying out earlier in like really trying to help preserve this feeling of intimacy, for somebody who is, like, who is stuck on this idea that my team size is a proxy for my own power and authority, how do you deal with that with, with somebody who maybe is trying to use that as a way to demonstrate power and preserve then the intimacy? Of a team. Yes. So first of all, we are trying to decouple the team size from impact. As in, of course, the, the bigger the team size, ideally the, the, the bigger impact. But if there are even small teams with high impact, the small team size is not the deterrent to promotions, for example, or visibility. Conversely, you know, if somebody's team is too big, it can, can be a detriment. You know, so you amassed a lot of people, but you're not doing good things with them. Therefore, you know, it's a, it's a ding as opposed to some kind of advantage, right? But we we essentially try to kind of in real time look at, at managers. So I, I think it's it's not like it's impossible to like quietly amass an army of people and nobody will notice, right? <laughs> we actually, even though we grow quickly and there's plenty of headcount and plenty of hiring, I like to operate kind of in, in the, you know, every headcount is precious. And how do we give it, right? So usually I don't give somebody like 20 headcount. I give them three and then three and then three and then let's let's see how it goes. I also, if you kind of go with the, you know, the larger the team, the more important you are, it can go or it can cause lowering the hiring bar. 
right? Because then if you want to quickly hire an army of people, you just stop paying attention to quality. As I said, you know, we, we really try hard to decouple the notion of, of impact from, from team size. That feels like such a such an important notion to to communicate to your team. Um, and I really appreciated the idea of removing size from promotion consideration. Greg, are you ready to to wrap up with some rapid fire questions? Yes, I am. Perfect. Okay, what are you reading or listening to right now? So on the technical front, you know, recently there was a great database conference, Sigmod. So I've got you know a bunch of papers to read. Uh, non technically, I'm reading a biography of Robert Oppenheimer. I think there's a lot of interesting lessons, especially in his uh, case. He was a great engi- no, engineer great scientist, engineer at some level too, but also he was a great organizer. So it's pretty fascinating, his biography. A great organizer. That's a, a great way to capture that. What tool or methodology has had a big impact on you? Here, hands down, it's, it's test-driven development. You know what to do, start from test cases, build the rest. A powerful, that was a powerful, punchy way to, to capture the whole concept. <laughs> I love that. And then the, the last one, what is a trend that you're seeing or following that you find really interesting or something that maybe hasn't hit the mainstream yet? You know, so it's, it's always fascinating to look at ML, what kind of news cases come uh, up. I'm fascinated by uh, this kind of AI-powered code development assistance. So, uh, you know, GitHub Copilot, a few things of, of, of that way. How far can you push ML to write code starting from intent? I think this is the next great thing, and you know, let's see how it unfolds. How far can you push code starting from intent? That's great. Greg, thank you so much for, for joining us. Clarence, thank you so much for, for co-hosting and diving us into some really great conversation points. Um, Greg, we really appreciate your time. This was a ton of fun. Thank you, Greg. It was great. Anytime. Thank you. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure that you click subscribe if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or follow if you're listening on Spotify. And if you love the show, we also have a ton of other ways to stay involved with the engineering leadership community, to stay up to date and learn more about all of our upcoming events, our peer groups, and other programs that are going on. Head to sfelc.com. That's sfelc.com. See you next time on the Engineering Leadership Podcast.